On episode 234 of the Tennis Files podcast, you'll get an inside scoop on the Djokovic Australian Open saga and a preview of the Australian Open this year with special guest Gil Gross. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Welcome to the Tennis Files Podcast, bringing you advice from the top minds in tennis to help you improve your game. And now, here's your host, Mehrban Iranshad. Hey there, welcome back to another episode of the podcast, and also welcome if it is your first time listening to the show. And for today's episode, I brought on Gil Gross to chat about the Djokovic saga, and it really truly was a saga because it just lasted quite a long time and went back and forth. And as you'll hear, Gil and I discuss the ins and outs of it, and I'll also give you a sort of a conclusion after our chat. But Gil has done some great work in the tennis world. He is the host of Monday Match Analysis on the Gil Gross YouTube channel, which has over 12,000 YouTube subscribers. And he is also the host of Three, a tennis show which focuses on Roger Federer, Rafael Nadal, and Novak Djokovic and is on the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. And in following uh, the ATP Tour primarily on his show, I have really enjoyed his analysis of the players um, and uh, the tour in general and current events. And uh, I thought that he would be the perfect person to bring onto the show to talk about what went on with Novak Djokovic, as well as what he thinks will happen and who his favorites and dark horses are for the Australian Open. So without further ado, here is my interview with Gil Gross. Hey, everybody. Welcome to this episode of the Tennis Falls podcast. And it's really a pleasure and an honor to have Gil Gross on the podcast. Uh, I've been listening and watching uh, a lot of Gil's content on his YouTube channel which you should definitely check out, uh, and uh, really been enjoying the previews and also, you know, following the the Djokovic saga. So we'll talk about both of those uh, things. <laughs> so, uh, Gil, first off, thanks for coming on the show, and really appreciate your time. Thanks for having me, Marbon. It's great to be here. Oh yeah, of course. That thank you, Gil. And um, you know, I'm always interested in how tennis nuts like myself get their start in tennis. So I'm curious about you know, your journey and how you first got exposed to tennis. And if you could talk about that a little bit, that would be interesting. Yeah, I hope it is a really interesting story because uh, from my perspective, you know, it's a little bit boring, but basically these camps that I went to, these day camps, they were like these multi-sport camps, I would say. And tennis just happened to be the one that I gravitated to so strongly that I kind of wanted to just go to tennis camp. So it started off as kind of a summer thing and then it became a year round thing. Obviously I got a bug. Everyone I feel like has that phase where because they're a beginner, they're getting better at the sport really, really, really fast. And you get that kind of obsession over that period of time, especially. And it's easy to have because it's like the sky's the limit. I'm getting better every day. Then of course you you realize 
your potential to a certain extent and that kind of slows down. <laughs> but that I will say naturally, I guess the reason the next question would be why did you gravitate to tennis? I think the competitive nature of the one-on-one aspect I liked. I wanted that responsibility, that accountability that the sport gives you. Then the other thing is I'm not big. I'm pretty small. I'm like five foot six. And I felt like tennis is a sport I could still be good at, that I, I wasn't at this massive disadvantage, unlike basketball and baseball, where I was a really good fielder, and but I couldn't, I had no power. I didn't have the, the size to have power at the plate. But tennis, I felt like I could move well and hit just as hard as most of the people I was playing, even if they were bigger than me. And those were the reasons why I really loved, I, I kind of fell in love with it. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, yeah, you see, you know, some of these, um, shorter tennis players on the tour even that uh, give us a lot of hope. So, um, you know, I love, love hearing that. I uh, love hearing the passion. And um, in terms of like competitive tennis, I mean, did you play uh, a lot of tournaments and stuff? Did you play in, uh, in high school and college? Like what, how did you uh, progress that way? Yeah, I had a very strange and unconventional way about it where I trained, I trained a ton and I trained under Chris Lewitt, who I think is a world-class coach. He's the author of a couple of books, The, uh, the Secrets of Spanish Tennis, and then uh, another book, which is like an encyclopedia on tennis technique. Uh, I worked very hard, but I didn't compete that often. I didn't play that many tournaments. I knew I wanted to go to a big school, and my priority was always broadcasting. I wanted to go to a school that was, you know, power five. I was never going to be good enough to to play tennis at the division one power five level didn't have that in me for sure i had a pretty bad injury my sophomore year of high school that also put a dampener on my on my competitive tennis life but uh i i would say i got to probably a strong division three level but decided to kind of leave it at that and and didn't didn't really play enough to obtain a very accurate recruiting ranking or anything like that. So it's kind of weird, but it's just how the cookie crumbled. Part of it was probably my my parents just not really being proactive and pushing me into tournaments, but at the same time, really supporting my training and buying me all the equipment I needed, getting me all the coaching I needed. But on the weekends, it wasn't, we're going to get in the car and drive two hours and the weekend is going to be you playing a tournament. That's just kind of how it worked. I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, no, you know, I mean, I think the main thing really in the end is that, you know, we were in the game, we're participating in some sense because, you know, 99.9% of us aren't playing on the tour or anything like that. But, uh, you know, you found a different way to, uh, to, you know, contribute to the game and to everybody. And they really love your work, my, me included, um, you know, you're giving us uh, recaps. And I also really find it cool that you also give, um, you know, perspective as to the tennis players, like their games and their strategies and, you know, all these details. So it's really cool. And then in terms of your tennis journalism, I mean, how, how did that evolve over time? Because, um, you know, obviously now you have, you know, a, a great show and Monday match analysis, and then you have um, your podcast as well. So uh, yeah, which is a host of three, right? Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Awesome. Yeah. Which is on the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, like like my show is, which is great. So yeah, how, what was your um, what was your evolving uh, nature of of uh, your your career in that respect? 
I figured out I wanted to be a sports broadcaster pretty early on and tennis was my sport, but I didn't know that I wanted to, I guess, specialize in tennis as heavily as I have. The way it kind of worked out is my radio station that I was interning at in high school ended up shutting down and I needed a way to continue to do what I thought I wanted to do at the time, which was basically sports talk show hosting, sports commentary, sports opinion. So I went to YouTube because you don't need anyone to hire you in order to say what you're, uh, to do a talk show on YouTube. You can just do it. So I did that. I was in high school and I did some tennis stuff. The tennis stuff happened to do a little bit better. A couple of videos that kind of blew up compared to a lot of the other content I was doing. And then when I went to college, theoretically, I could have left YouTube alone. I no longer needed it. I started it for something to do. Once I was at Syracuse, there is a ton of broadcasting stuff to keep you busy. The reason I didn't stop is because I realized that there was an audience out there that was really enjoying my tennis coverage. So I dropped everything else and I just made it a tennis show, a tennis channel. And every, I created a concept where every Monday I would go super in depth, in more depth than my goal was to go in more depth than anyone else was going into the men's final on Sunday. So I'll do the show every Monday, not a crazy commitment. And I'll, I'll break down the final and that'll be that. And it, it just grew and the audience kept me going because it feels really good. And it's a lot of fun to be able to, to interact with, with tennis fans and to share the experience of, of going through a season uh, with tennis fans and to have that audience is such an amazing feeling that that kept me in it. So it just really evolved from there, I think, I think to answer your question. Yeah, I have to give you major props because when I first started Tennis Files, it actually was like a tennis news site. And I was, I was telling myself, yeah, I'm going to cover like all the matches all the time. And I was working too. And like I tried for a few days and then I said, how the hell am I going to compete with all these sites and everything? But you know, what I like about you is that you, you kind of niched it down in a sense that, that, you know, you, you weren't like reporting like every single match every day, but you know, you picked a day to, to, you know, talk about the the tournament and such. So very, very cool. So obviously I want to get into the... (laughs) The Djokovic saga, I mean, it's just like insane what's happening and, and you know, back and forth with all this stuff. So, you know, for, for some people who, who haven't been tracking quite as deeply as, as you have, can you tell us like why Djokovic's visa was initially canceled? <laughs> I wish that were clearer. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe what happened, um, I guess. You could just... <laughs> well, well he, and, and here's why I, why I say that. You could say, I'll tell you what the, what the federal government said and the, the, the organization that kind of makes the rules or sets the, the guidelines is the ATAGI, uh, which I, I still don't memorize what it stands for. Uh, but anyway, they tell the border force basically what the guidelines are. Then the border force interviews you at the border and decides to either accept your visa or cancel your visa. And the communication from Tennis Australia to players was you need to either, you have three options, either get vaccinated or prove that you have an acute medical condition that prevents you from getting the vaccine or prove that you had a positive COVID-19 test in the last six months. 
there are three individuals who chose the the third option and they had a positive test and that's what they used to get into Australia. Renata Voracheva, the Czech doubles player, an unnamed official, and Novak Djokovic. Renata Voracheva and the unnamed official were let into Australia. Djokovic's visa was canceled for, for again, reasons that apparently it was because the six-month rule about COVID positive was, was not a real guideline. And that was, that's not an acceptable uh, medical exemption. That is what, that's what the federal government said after it happened. So then, of course, the, the question was, wait, you just let in two people on that. And then they said, oh yeah, we're investigating that. Then Renata Voracheva and the unnamed official, their visas were canceled. So apparently on the same grounds that, that the, the six month thing that Craig Tiley communicated to the players was not an actual means for a medical exemption to get into Australia. So I believe that is what we're going with for why Novak Djokovic's visa was canceled. But obviously the inconsistencies that we saw there initially raise a lot of questions about the political influence of what went down. Yeah, it's all pretty confusing. I mean, it, it how does, you know, how does Craig Tiley get the get that wrong? I mean, like is there some confusion with like Vic, the Victoria government and um the federal government or like well, what's what's going on? <laughs> Absolutely. That's yeah. exactly why he'd get it wrong because even even Scott Morrison, the prime minister, was saying up until the day that Novak traveled that it's up to the state of Victoria. And then what we saw was you had this medical, these two independent medical advisory boards giving approval, which was basically saying, was basically approving the whole six-month deal that, that yes, it is not a public health risk for people who just tested positive to enter the state of Victoria. And the exemption that was handed to Djokovic came from Victoria. But at the end of the day, so, so while that's where the confusion came from, and while Craig Tiley has said there's conflicting information and it was all very contradictory and very confusing, and, and while that is true, there still needs to be some responsibility there. It was his job to get a solid yes or no and to make sure that none of this happened. Tennis Australia is the chaperone and the bridge between the athletes and the Australian government. And the fact that this blew up in everybody's faces is is definitely reflects poorly on Tennis Australia. There's no doubt about it. Yeah, because he should have known that like it's, you know, federal authorities are dealing with, you know, the border situation like customs, right? I mean, isn't that kind of why that he messed up? Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And right. um, you know, when I was listening to um one of your YouTube videos on this, like you did mention that you felt like you know, all parties pretty much uh, look bad, and, and it's not something that you'd usually say or anything. But, but th in this case, it's true. So, I mean, with Novak, um, what do you think? Like, uh, how how far in the wrong was he with this? And like, obviously, he's had some issues um, with with like things that have facts that have leaked out about his uh, the time period uh, timeline for you know COVID positive tests and <laughs> outside activities. So, what's your take on his his uh, culpability here? Well, I think putting yourself in, in Novak's shoes, 
you're told that if you test positive, you're allowed into the country. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, that exemption is intended for people who who mean to be vaccinated, want to be vaccinated, but unfortunately can't because they tested positive. That's what because the the law of the land is you must be vaccinated. Here are the exemptions or the exceptions to the rule. So from Novak's perspective, you could make an argument that morally he could have said, you know what, the the exemption isn't really for people like me who have no intention of getting vaccinated. The rule is for people who can't. And that would be true. But at the same time, I think if you put most human beings in Novak's shoes, where you, you have an exemption and the rule says you can come, most people are going to take it. And some people you know, will morally have opinions on that, and that's okay. But most people are going to take it. The problem, I guess, where Novak looks bad is simply his behavior and his conduct that actually didn't have any relation to what happened at the border in Australia. Mm-hmm. But it, it, it's in regards to a positive test that ultimately would have exempted him. But he, the one thing that, that he has apolo- or acknowledged and taken responsibility for is going to a, an interview in a Photoshop a photo shoot with the French magazine L'Equipe. And he was, he knew he was positive. He knew he was COVID positive at that time. And he said he didn't want to let the journalist down. I, I find that really hard to believe considering surely anyone in the top 10 turns hundreds of interviews down, including Novak every single year. I think he didn't want anyone to know that something was up and that, that he may, maybe had tested positive. Uh, because as far as we know, uh, the functions he attended in Serbia when he he was positive, but he he hadn't known, um, according to him, he didn't notify anyone afterwards. As far as we know, that he was positive, which is a, a good a good thing to do if you come into contact with people after you're positive. So so that is an example where uh, where he did not where his behavior was not responsible when it comes to the the simple things that. You should do uh, at the moment with uh, with dealing with this pandemic. Now, d- does that mean what happened at the border w- was really on his shoulders? No, but nonetheless, if you look at the events of the last t- two months, is that a red flag? And could that have hurt him in Alex Hawk, the immigration minister's decision to recancel his visa? I think I think so. Yes. Yeah, definitely. And you made a great point about how. You know, ideally, Djokovic should have just been transparent and told everyone, like, you know, what his exemption was for and all that. But do you think there it's possible that he didn't do so because of like the timeline and how, like, I think the deadline wasn't it like December 10th for him to get the exemption, but he got it afterwards. So could that be a reason why he didn't, uh, he wasn't as transparent? Maybe the 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 deadline thing is interesting because the place that I saw the deadline and jump in if, uh, if, if you have anything to add here, sure. I saw that in the leaked Tennis Australia email to the players. Mm-hmm. And I do wonder, you know, Tennis Australia, technically, they have no say over what happens at the border. So the deadline to me seems like like artificial. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like Novak probably gave Craig Tiley a call and said, can I play? And the answer was yes. <laughs> you know, it was past the deadline, but the answer was yes. And that's that. 
But I don't think the government has anything to do with that deadline. Therefore, I almost wonder why it existed. Uh, maybe it had something to do with the simple feat of like uh, Tennis Australia wanted to know who was coming and who wasn't yeah. for, for some sort of planning purposes. Yeah. But yeah, I, I feel like the deadline was, was something kind of not very concrete, yeah. if that makes sense. Yeah, and it's it's really interesting how late he got COVID and was able to use yeah. the exemption. I mean, do you think? <laughs> well, I mean, we you know we don't want to like speculate too much, I guess. But um, uh, what do you think he would have done if he didn't uh, get COVID? Like, you think he just wouldn't have played or what? Yeah, that's what it looks like. I, mean, <laughs> I can't really think. I can't really think of anything else because I, I'm pretty sure it was too late to get vaccinated. I, I don't think yeah. you can because I'm pretty sure the rule is fully. You can't mm -hmm. get one shot and go to Australia. You need two. So that's too late. I don't think he was going to play. I thought the plan, I'm pretty sure the plan was to skip it. Yeah, that makes sense. Hey, I may be messing this up totally, but Johnson & Johnson is one shot, right? I, I remember it was one shot. So could that have counted? Maybe as a full Good vaccination? Question. Good question. I'm, I'm not sure. Yeah, yeah, it's okay. We'll, we'll have to look at that. But in any case, yeah. Pretty pretty crazy stuff. And uh, in terms of the uh, documentation that he submitted, where he he or his agent said that um, Djokovic hadn't traveled within the past fourteen days, um, what do you think about that? Do you think uh, you know? Obviously, we're kind of like guessing as to whether he's telling the truth and all that. But like, it, do you think that's pretty common that like uh, you know his agent filled it all out and then he didn't look and all that, or do you think he would have actually reviewed it? Definitely common that the agent takes care of it. There's no way. I mean, there's a lot of paperwork involved here, and I'm, yeah. I'm sure, I'm sure, I'm sure the vast majority of players who can afford to tell someone to do it for them uh, do that. I mean, us regular citizens often pay people to do our taxes, yeah, because it's just too complicated. So, yeah, uh, just as an example. But in terms of the error being made, that's the kind of thing that regular people don't get away with when it comes to these visa decisions i mean yeah. countries don't care if if about your desire to to be let in this is generally a, a situation where people trying to cross borders are very powerless they they are not uh treated generally and i'm i'm not supporting this i'm just uh illustrating this as a reality they are not treated as like someone who is deserving of empathy, understanding, exceptions. It's a, it's a brutal game they play with visas and borders. So it's a bad mistake. And I don't know if it played any factor. It, it's a human error. It, it's not, you know, it, it might be on Novak's agent and not Novak, but it's, you're, you're not supposed to mess up on visa form. I, I can tell you that. Yeah, I mean, it would be kind of ridiculous in a slippery slope if we, you know, like people had to fill out stuff, uh, information, and then like when they when it's false, they say, oh, you know, it was my agent or was this and that. Like, are we supposed to let, you know, everybody off who gives that excuse like that? So, yeah, that's definitely a slippery slope. In terms of the um, players, I mean, I know you're not like at the open and everything, like asking people what's going on. Maybe, maybe you are talking to the players, but like, what do you think they think uh, or do you think they even care? I think that there are a lot of players who have no interest in putting anything out in the media about a controversial issue. Like the, you have to think a lot of people I, I have seen, especially Novak fans, 
disappointed that there hasn't been a large response in support of Novak. Even, even players who do, who would like to say these things or are saying these things behind closed doors, there is a huge percentage of these athletes who would rather just not have to uh, get involved here. <laughs> and, and you really can't, I don't think you can blame them for that. Uh, it, it's not in their best interest to, to put themselves out there on controversial issues such as vaccination, vaccine mandates, and, and things like this because they have fans. And the, the best way to keep all of your fans happy is to frankly shut your mouth because your fans probably don't agree uh, on, on a lot of these issues. So the more you put yourself out there, the more you're alienating some of your fans for no reason, really. Um, in terms of what the players think, 90, uh, 97% of them are vaccinated hmm. uh, on the ATP side of, of the top 100, I should, mm-hmm. I should specify. Mm-hmm. So I think that tells you that a lot of them probably have one of the viewpoints that, that people have had, which is like, well, no sympathy, you should just be vaccinated. And, and that's where that kind of ends. Now, once you get past that, I think if you look at the facts, I think that Novak starts to look much more sympathetic. Once you get past the, well, you could have just gotten vaccinated. And in that respect, there are probably uh, many who are like, hey, I I read this Tennis Australia. I got this email too from Tennis Australia. It says that if you test positive, you can come in. So what's the big deal? There's also some some of, uh, I'm sure there are some players who, uh, they disagree with Australia's overall uh, policy here. And they don't believe in vaccine mandates, even if they are vaccinated. So I'm not really answering your question, which is how do most players feel or what's the pie chart? Because I don't really know. But I imagine that it looks a lot like the public. And the public is not on the same page on this situation. Now, the Australian public, I think, especially the non-tennis fan public, I think that they are mostly on the the unvaccinated athlete should absolutely not be let in. Thank you very much. Now, they have no idea about the specifics. They don't know how many slams Novak has won. Not saying that should matter. All I'm trying to say is they don't care about Novak. They have no emotional attachment to Novak. <laughs> tennis fans do. And tennis fans are, are biased by those things, either positively biased or negatively biased. I would say the locker room is probably pretty split, if I were to guess. Hmm. Gotcha. Thanks, Gil. And yeah, I don't know. I just I started thinking about um, Novak's parents and brother and, and you know, I, I almost like find it hilarious in a in a weird way, you know, like when they're talking about, you know, the conditions and well, I think one of the sayings was like Novak is Serbia and Serbia is Novak. And, and it was it was kind of funny when they I guess, as you mentioned um, that I was listening to, like once a reporter, somebody asked about the timeline of events, like the, the brother was like, this, this press conference is over. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's, 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 it's kind of crazy, but do, do you think that, um, I mean, what do you think about the conditions that he was in and did, do you think that that will affect his, um, his game and, you know, because obviously it did disrupt his very stringent, uh, nutrition and training plans. But that being said, you know, I used eat, well, I, I guess it's interrupted again. Right. So I don't know you know, how you think he'll perform at, uh, you know, on Monday if he does play, uh, right. given the interruptions and so forth. Yeah, I, I, uh, 
we can, I'm sure you're, you plan on getting into this later. I don't think he's in a good position uh, legally, but if he does play, I think physically, I think he'll be fine. I don't think, I think when you're at a hundred percent, you, uh, you lose it slowly when you're at a hundred percent fitness. Mm-hmm. It's when you're at less than a hundred percent, you gain it very, even slow, even more slowly. And the fact that Novak, I'm sure when he was in tip top shape, when he entered detention, I don't think three, four days, no working out, no hitting tennis balls. I think that probably comes back. Like the fitness is not lost that quickly. The the first day I, and maybe the second day, the third day, are you feeling the effects of being a little bit sedentary? Are you feeling stiff? Are you feeling more sore? Probably yes. But in terms of the things that really matter and players spend a lot of hard uh, work on building up, cardiovascular endurance, muscular endurance, I just don't think you lose that in three, four days. I think it takes maybe like two weeks, uh, 10 days, then you start to lose that. I'm not like certified in this. I am. I have not gone to school on these things, but I certainly... I certainly have observed how how athletes have reacted to certain situations like injuries and stuff or, or or COVID. Honestly, COVID has been the best thing where people are quarantining, NFL quarterbacks are quarantining, and then they're coming and they're they're playing. And I, I just I don't think that it's a long enough period of time to really make an impact. Where players are often injured for for a month, and then it takes them how long to come back? Two, three weeks, but they were out for a month. Three, four days, minuscule. Yeah, yeah. That definitely makes sense there, Gil. I agree with you. And so in terms of like next steps, and so by the way, we're recording this on a Friday and it'll, you know, come out in a, a few days after. But um what uh what is the next step, you know, in terms of what's going on? Like it I it has has Djokovic's team filed an injunction uh on the latest cancellation? The they haven't had to. They okay. haven't had to because he's not he's not in detention. He's uh now, the question, I guess, now becomes how quickly can they get back in court? Because it does seem like an appeal is being lined up and it's the weekend, which is a big problem, in, <laughs> especially in, in government, because government, yes. government is not usually open. <laughs> yeah, definitely not <laughs> here. Go, yeah. <laughs> I don't, yeah. So, yeah. Um, I don't know if they're going to be able to get this together quickly enough. I do know that from the political reporters that I've followed in Australia, it it looks like it's going to be a tough court case to win because the minister has discretionary power over this, which means the burden is really on on Novak to, uh, I I don't know, if I were to tell you what the defense is going to be against someone who has discretionary power to cancel any visa he wants, uh, I couldn't tell you. I mean, the way he won the first court case, I can tell you that it was because border force didn't give him a chance within, within you know, a reasonable time window to respond to the cancellation of the visa, which is written in the procedure. When a visa is canceled, you get to respond. And they told Novak, you have until 8.30. And then they went at 6.15 a.m. They said, okay, we need your response. And he was like, yo, my agent's sleeping, Craig Tiley's sleeping, I have nothing here. And the court was like, what was this? 
right? And they quashed yeah. it. Yeah. I don't know what it's going to be this time. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Weird. And just to clarify too, um, as far as the timeline and ch- like chance that he plays, like, so is it, are they supposed to like uh, come to a, a judgment on the weekend or do you think it's going to be afterwards and he'll definitely play or what, what are the chances that Novak will play? Do you think? I, I've heard they wanted to get this done by Monday, which probably mm. means they want to be in court on Sunday. And I'm just unclear at the moment if if people are uh, are going to be showing up to work or not on that day to actually execute what needs to be to be executed or or what Novak's team desperately at least wants to be executed. It, it is kind of uh, and then the tough thing I would say on the other side is this decision took a really long time which is fine. I mean, it's, it's Alex Hawk's right to take the do, do to take due diligence. And, uh, these things do take time, but then in, in the statement, and part of this could be because of the, the prospect of an appeal, he didn't really say what grounds he was recanceling the visa on. He gave the most vague, vague thing possible. And again, I think if he was specific, he would have given Djokovic's legal team a chance to respond to whatever he said. So I thought I think he was vague by design, but all we have is public interest and some other word that didn't mean anything to me, like good, good uh, process or whatever. Yeah, good order grounds. I just brought order. it up. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Good order. I don't know what good order means. I know what public interest means. It's incredibly vague. So what's interesting about the prospect of an appeal case, which I do hope we get because I like information. And when people have to be sworn under oath and go in front of a judge, we get information. So I hope that there is a, a trial just just for the sake of uh, understanding the issue better. And I don't really know what to expect if there is. Yeah, that's wild. Yeah, I'm just going to read it. Just the first sentence is, uh, today okay. I exercise my power under Section 133 C3 of the Migration Act to cancel the visa held by Mr. Djokovic on health and good order grounds on the basis that it was in the public interest to do so. So. There you go. Um, yeah, I made a joke to my uh, to my friend. You know, like, what if um, you know, it's it's like in the middle of of Novak's match, and like all of a sudden they uh <laughs> they come in to in with handcuffs or something, and it's like drag him out, and they say uh you know Kikmanovic wins by deportation. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. It's it's great. Do, do you know what time uh, uh Novak's match is on Monday by any chance, or like morning, afternoon, evening? I don't recall. No, no, I'm I'm not sure. Or they might not have scheduled <laughs> it yet. I don't know. And- no, but but I will say the top half is generally on Monday, yeah, so yeah. I, I can say that. And it's interesting, you know, how will the tournament organizers schedule Novak? Is he is he seen as a main event? Is he the night session, uh, or <laughs> is he is he the day session when people are going to be a little bit less drunk and <laughs> maybe a little easier to control? Yeah, that is a very good question. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Uh, let's see. Trying to think if there's any other wrap-up questions for you, Novak. Uh, I do want to get some of the projections in and your thoughts on the draw overall. But um, uh, fan reaction as well. You kind of touched upon this, but fan reaction overall, you think it'll be mixed, right? Or one toward the other way or the um, other? Yeah. Um, I don't know. You know, in, in my world, it's very much a bubble. It's, it's diehard fans, a lot of them. You know, whether that be a, a diehard tennis fan, a diehard Djokovic fan, I, I do have a lot of those because I feel like over the years I've, I've treated Novak fairly uh, whenever I can. And I think people, mm-hmm. people really do appreciate that. Yeah. Um, you know, I've been, getting, I've been getting a lot of, look, a lot of people, it's weird because, and to answer your question, yeah, I think there's going to be a lot of split because even what... Australia's outlook on the on the pandemic, which which is really how this begins. Nobody can agree on that in the first place. So how could you go from not agreeing on that to everybody agreeing on on Novak? You really can't. There's been I'm trying to think like, is there a comment that I've seen a ton? I guess the most popular the most popular opinions that I've seen from fans is either the complete kind of pro-vaccination stance, which is like, the answer here is to get vaccinated. Mm-hmm. I've seen that a good amount. On the Novak side, it's, this has nothing to do with public health. If you, if you got COVID, your immunity is as high, if not higher than if you got vaccinated, which is true. And it's completely political and it's completely biased and it's absolutely shameful. So those are the two things that I've seen most often. And Mirabon, those two things are very far away from each other. (laughs) Slightly, slightly. Yeah. I have seen also a lot of the Novak contingency wanting to uh, have a a look into Nadal's entry into Australia. And I believe that there's been a misunderstanding of the guidelines in Melbourne. I I don't want to get into it unless you want to, but I do think Nadal's entry was... uh, was okay, and I don't think any rules were broken. Shapovalov and Pavlichenkova, they did the same thing. I don't hear anybody complaining about them. Mm. These these are all issues that I've I've seen brought up, though. Yeah, I guess if you don't mind, you know, everyone. Well, not everyone, sure. but a lot of people like Nadal, obviously. So, what what uh, what was the contention there, and why is it okay for Nadal? The contention, case? the contention is that it was not fourteen days between him testing positive and him entering Australia. If you go onto the official website, you can find a bullet point where if you don't read the whole thing, it says it needs to be 14 days. But what that really says is it needs to be 14 days if you do not, if you cannot provide a negative test. If you don't have a negative PCR test, then you can still be allowed into Australia. And generally for all travelers, you need that negative test. But if you're positive for COVID and you keep testing positive, which is something that can happen, it's called like viral shedding. Um, Australia still wants a way for people to come into the country if you continue to test positive. 
And part of those, uh, part of that kind of checklist is it's got to be 14 days after. But Nadal did produce a negative test and, and mm-hmm. he said as much. So we're mm-hmm. not even guessing there. So he doesn't need the 14 days. Yeah, makes sense. Thanks, Gil. And uh, in terms of um, if Djokovic uh, does not play in the first round, is that correct that Rublev would take his place? Is that right? Or is something else going to happen? Okay. That is what, well, you know, that, that's what I'm hearing from a lot of people. My, my gut instinct was going to be that that won't happen because Novak, they can't take him out of the draw until he withdraws. So are they going to make these mm. changes on Sunday night? Like, I'm, I'm a little bit, I kind of don't trust what I'm hearing. I kind of think, like, I, I, I want to stress, like, no one, again, everyone who I listen to is telling me that it's going to be Rublev becoming the, as the four seed, getting that top quarter. But I kind of feel like they're going to put a lucky loser in Novak's spot and call it a day. Hmm. Mm, that would make sense. So, Gil, I mean, you do host uh, the show, host of three, a tennis show. So why why don't we just talk about Nadal for a bit? And I was listening actually yeah. to that episode, and uh, you, I think you did talk about Nadal and how you maybe weren't super bullish about him and that he's had some, um, I guess, niggles in the somewhat recently and short practice sessions and so forth. And I think you said Moy also talked about that in a sense. So. What what are your thoughts on how Nadal played in Australia or, or has played so far um, and his, his press prospects? Well, I think, first of all, in the super big picture, the last two years or so, Nadal has not been an overwhelming favorite over his rivals on hard court, whether that be a Tsitsipas or um, Medvedev, he's played very well, uh, or uh, a Zverev. He hasn't been an overwhelming favorite on hardcore. He's been one of the favorites, but not head and shoulders above those guys. So I start from that point, and that's, that's big picture before we're talking about any injury. Now we have a situation where he was two months without picking up a tennis racket and picked up a racket for the first time. My understanding is that was in October. Hmm. So... Then my understanding is that the pain wouldn't go away, that there were a lot of issues throughout the next couple months. So how, for, for how long has he been able to not just get back to where he was, how, how much time has he had to, to improve? Mm. How much time has he had to actually work on anything other than just fitness and timing and, and all that basic stuff. Basically, it's been a compromised preparation. And last time in Australia, he had a compromised preparation. We saw what happened. He was dealing with the back. He was missing training. And what did he do? He looked fantastic until, until two sets to love up in the quarterfinal. And then he runs into a player who he needs to be 100% against, which is Stefano Tsitsipas. And there are just players at the top of the sport where 90% Nadal isn't going to cut it. On a hard court, yeah. you're going to need a hundred percent Nadal, and I don't really think we're going to get that. And part of that is mental, also, because I have noticed that he just hasn't been as clutch as I would want him to be. 
Uh, and w- one of the examples is that match against Tsitsipas where that third set tie break, he, he made a bunch of uh, really shocking mistakes. And then mm-hmm. last week he won a title. He won the title, which is amazing. And honestly, I'm amazed that Nadal, every time he comes back, I never take that for granted. And I think it's amazing because he's 35 years old. His body, I think, has quit on him multiple times. And through sheer willpower, he's come back every time. But he was broken twice serving for the match because mm. he he played two sloppy games. I mean, he's not, in my opinion, he is not he is not there yet in terms of how good he feels on the court and the level that that he's been able to show. So I think he's going to win matches. Then he's going to face the elite players, and I don't think he'll be ready for that. Yeah, I'd have to agree with that. And yeah, like you said, such a long layoff. I I, I forgot that you know his previous match before this Melbourne tournament, uh, I watched it, and it was in D.C., and that was a long time ago. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, <laughs> not too much playing. Um. So in in your I think it was your YouTube um your latest YouTube video you talked about well you go through your you know different segments of the draw and you give your you know your dark horses and top picks and so forth and upsets so um can you just give us a few of your dark horses and a few of your upsets that you think are are potential or have potential Sure let me uh let me pull up my my doc my cheat sheet my rule for dark horses is they have to be unseated so that okay. there's there's good and bad. The good thing is it forces me to actually pick a dark horse, not like, you know, <laughs> yeah. some people are like, my dark horse is Hercotch. And it's like, eh, or my dark horse is Sinner. Uh, so I, I'm not allowed to do that based on my rules. Um, okay. So here are my dark horse. I'm going to give you all four. Yeah. Uh, it's Tommy Paul, mm. who could benefit big time from Djokovic being out because uh, mm. he would have played Djokovic in the second round. Uh, in Zverev's quarter, it's Tanasi Kakanakis and James Duckworth. Kakanakis, the only concern with him is he keeps winning so much that he has played a ton of tennis and you worry about fatigue. James Duckworth is the other one, a couple of Aussies there. Mm. Uh, in, in Tsitsipas's quarter, it's Ilya Avashka, who I think could really challenge Kasper Ruud in, in round two. And Andy Murray, who is technically unseated and he's looking really good and always, I think, deserves... Of course, everybody's respect. And then in Medvedev's quarter, it's David Gafan, who I'm just, I'm wondering, you know, have, have we seen the end of Gafan as a top 20 level player? And uh, we'll find out probably this year, but I'm, I, I leave open the possibility that the answer is no. Hmm. Yeah, I hope not. It's, it's definitely been a while uh, since I've, we've seen him do, you know, some major yeah. damage, if I recall correctly. And um, obviously let's leave, Let's leave no, uh, Djokovic out of this, but who are your favorites? I mean, I, I think for me, you know, uh, I think Zverev, Tsitsipas, they obviously have a really good shot at it, but who do you think um, has the best shot? I really think there's a pretty big gap on hard court between Djokovic, Medvedev, and Zverev and everybody else. Mm, yeah. I, I, I make them big favorites against against everyone, and if you look at what happened in 2021, it really did reflect that. If you look at the Australian Open, you had Djokovic, uh, you had Medvedev against... Did, did, did we get Medvedev's it in Australia? Anyway, we got Djokovic, Medvedev in the final. If you look at uh, the Olympics, we had a Djokovic-Zverev semifinal. Mm-hmm. If you look at the US Open, Djokovic-Zverev semifinal, Djokovic-Medvedev final. 
if uh, ATP finals, Djokovic, Zverev semifinal, Zverev, Medvedev final. Like it's really these three guys who have been battling for these hard court titles. And I think there's good reason for that. Tsitsipas has some things with his return that really just doesn't, he's just missing that 5% that he needs mm. on that shot to really compete. And then you have, uh, you have some guys who just haven't been ready in a center and an Alcaraz or uh, a Hercotch or Rublev. They are, they're going to be underdogs. So I favor Zverev and Medvedev. And then, you know, the concern with, uh, I give Medvedev a head to head matchup advantage over Zverev right now. The one concern is this. Medvedev's offseason was three weeks. Hmm. It's crazy. It's crazy that, like, eventually I could see that catching up to him. So I don't know, you know, once he gets through the first week, I feel pretty confident that it'll be all systems go. But if you were to ask me who's going to, if if one of them is going to lose round one or round two, who's it going to be, I'd actually say Medvedev. So hmm. this could be Zverev's chance hmm. to now – He's got some mental hurdles to overcome because he has not played well under pressure in majors against the best players in the world. We'll see. We'll see if, if that continues. But uh, to me, Medvedev or Zverev, massive favorites. And I, I don't have anyone who I really circle as someone who, who, can, who can beat them on their best day. Yeah, great thoughts there. You know, in terms of uh, Medvedev, kind of to to just go on more of the like strategy and like game improvement, which is kind of the theme of the podcast uh, usually. Is like what what? Yeah. How would you characterize his game, and what what are the strengths of his game? He is someone who probably has the greatest serve return combination in the history of the game. The reason for that is he is the best moving big man in the game. He has taken what Rafael Nadal has pioneered, which is that super deep return position that gives you yeah. tons of time on the ball. Uh, you need a lot of speed and physical fitness to execute that. Medvedev has that, but then he also benefits from being six foot six on the serve. So you have a guy who is a top top five to top 10 server in the game. He is also a top five to top 10 returner mm -hmm. in men's tennis who has incredible endurance, who has incredible consistency. And it's a very nightmarish unicorn combination where he could improve. Well, the biggest thing in my opinion is the forehand. Uh, somewhere where, and especially when it comes to generating pace, and that's what hurts him on clay. He does not have the Nadal, team Berrettini, oh, floating ball, center of the court, yeah, fairly deep. <laughs> Let me use my forehand to do point-ending damage. Medvedev just doesn't have the strength to do that or the weight of shot. So I think that's his biggest weakness. Sometimes the speedy players can bother him because he's like, I can't finish the point. I can't hit through the court because his his ball is not huge, especially on the slower surfaces. There are other little things. The return position can be taken advantage of by someone who's serving volleys a lot, like Djokovic did in Paris, or someone like Hugo Ambert, who just has a great slice serve that puts him in the first row, right. 10 feet outside the doubles alley. <laughs> little things. But um, he's also 
improved some of his traditional weaknesses. I thought he used to be pretty bad at handling slice. Now I think he's much better. And he used to not hit very good passing shots because he doesn't get a lot of topspin. And now he's able to somehow, and I haven't figured out how, he still hits good passing shots. Yeah, it, it's amazing how how well he does despite the technique. But yeah, when you have somebody who's in top in, in serving and returning the two most <laughs> important you know shots in the game, then you're going to have a, a top player. Uh, in terms of Djokovic, um, I appreciate your analysis too. Like, you know, he's obviously like one of the most dominant players of all time and everything. But w- what could he possibly improve on? When you when you've watched him, are there any aspects of his game where you say, "Wow, I think he could do a little better in this category"? That's getting so much harder. That used to be a lot easier, but he's really polished the outer edges of his game so well. He's serving incredibly well. I will say there was a bit of a regression in his second serve last year. Mm. It was much better in 2019 and in 2020. And then he went back to kind of the slower kick serve. Uh, instead of uh, There was a point in time where he was hitting his second serve as like an 105-mile-per-hour slice serve. And it was very consistent, and it was out wide to the, the forehand often. And that was pretty incredible. Um, and that he kind of got away from that. My biggest thing with him is probably continuing the confidence to flatten out the forehand mm. and to, uh, to use that as kind of, I guess, generating offense from the baseline, even when he's nervous. That's something that it didn't come back to bite him against like Berrettini at Wimbledon. It did against Medvedev at the U.S. Open. There are times, and again, I'm, I feel like I'm kind of reaching on this, to be honest with you because at, at the French, his forehand was great. But sometimes the concern, I think, is he doesn't want to be as physical as he used to be willing to, to be. So he doesn't want to be as physical, but he also doesn't have huge finishing power from the back of the court. Mm-hmm. And that can be a tough combination sometimes. And that's where you see him start to go to the drop shot to try to finish points or to go to net prematurely to try to finish points. That's generally when you see that he's vulnerable, when he's looking for ways out and he doesn't quite have the weaponry to do it. But I'm not really sure, to be honest with you, what the glaring hole is at the moment where he can improve. Gotcha. What do you think? Uh, what do I think? You know, I think... Maybe try not to hit referees. <laughs> <laughs> that's, yeah. that's a good one. Yeah. yeah, no, I, I agree with your your assessments. Um, yeah, I mean, sometimes I feel like maybe he has like kind of low energy. I, I kind of think back to like those, he had a streak of like losing the first set quite a bit, but then he just, you know, he would come back from those like a champ. So it was incredible. But yeah, yeah not not too many holes. <sighs> Good stuff. And um, what do you think about it? So I'll preface this by saying, you know, we're not ignoring like the WTA tour or anything, but Gil, I think if, if I'm correct, like you, you pretty much focus on the ATP tour, right? like in your analysis and stuff. Right. Yeah. As a as a journalist and as a commentator, yeah. I I obviously covered WTA all the time yeah. on my Twitter feed. I I will right. cover WTA on YouTube where I feel like I'm going into a uh, a very, you know, like a very in-depth analysis. Yeah. Yeah. I don't even have the confidence honestly on on my uh I guess WTA knowledge base to really deliver confident expert analysis, but I, I, you know, I'm just not quite there. And if I am, 
I will uh, I will begin to to cover WTA more on the channel. But right now, I'm not quite there. I'm more comfortable covering it as a commentator or or a, a journalist, but not as an analyst. If that makes sense. Yeah, no, that totally makes sense. Yeah, I was just wondering if you had any thoughts at all on. I mean, I guess it's exciting for uh, Barty to be you know seated number one at the tournament yeah. and all that. But I, any any picks or anybody that you like from the that the women's side. I do have thoughts. My thoughts are that that Ash Barty is the best player in the world by a lot. Mm. And I don't know if she's seen as that. Obviously, there have been injury issues, and maybe that's why. The The weirdest thing about her resume is she's been really dominant against top 20 players, like really, really dominant. Mm. And then she has some losses against some uh, lower-ranked players, which is curious to see. I don't know if she is not... I don't know if that's a mental thing, if she's not kind of getting up for some of those matches that she that she needs to be, uh, the, the earlier rounds against the lesser ranked opponents. But ultimately, when I look at the completeness of her game, the weapons she has, what stands out to me more than anything is her combination of offensive weaponry and defensive capability. And I think a lot of the top women in the top, I would say, like 10 besides Sviantek and Sakari, mm-hmm. who are just not quite as polished, but I think have the ability to, to do both. I think that there are a lot of players who are uh, offensively dominant on the top of the tour, and Barty has that with her serve and her forehand. She's offensively yeah. dominant like a, like an Osaka, like a Sabalenka. Uh, like a like a Muguruza who does play a bit of defense, but not to Barty's level. Yeah, Barty's offensively dominant like that, but she will also scramble. She will get extra balls back. She will run. She will defend. And I think that's one of the things that separates her. Besides the usual trope of well, she slices her backhand and and volleys well, which is what a lot of people really love about her. I'm not hating on that. That's great, but. I think that there are bigger reasons for why she does so much winning. So Barty's my pick. Nice. Nice. Me too. Awesome. <sighs> kind of random question that came in my head. You know, I, I, I was surprised by, and going back to Djokovic again, I was surprised yeah. that, you know, that um, Nikirios kind of came into de- defense of uh, uh, Djokovic, although I, I can't understand it from the aspect of, you know, media, you know, the media getting on the players, um, both of them. And then I was also a little surprised that um, Sitsipas, like I think it was him, right? That he kind of came out like fairly strongly against um, mm. against Djokovic, if I remember right. Um, yeah, yeah. But uh, wh- what do you think about that? And do do you think that there's a chance for a Kyrgios Djokovic bromance? <laughs> <laughs> Nick Kyrgios is an amazing example of why this issue just spans way beyond kind of Novak and why no one's going to agree on this because I think I think what Nick doesn't approve of is Australia's outlook on COVID and mm. how the government has handled the pandemic. Mm-hmm. So because Nick doesn't like that, of course he doesn't like how Novak's being treated. You know, as soon as, as soon as you start to see it as like, Nick must love Novak. No, he's already said he does not like Novak. You know, nothing has changed there, right? Like when he said that, believe him. And then in Tsitsipas's case, I'm a little bit suspicious that Steph wasn't communicating exactly what he was trying to communicate. Mm. And sometimes he's a very thoughtful guy. Yes. And his English is totally fine. But sometimes he 
sometimes I think he tries to reach for kind of complicated explanations and sometimes misuses certain words and stuff. And I'm just a little bit, I watched the video, I watched the clip mm. and based on the fact that Tsitsipas really wasn't planning on getting vaccinated until a, the tours or the, the tour and tournaments kind of encouraged him to and Greek media got really mad at him when he said that he wasn't going to get vaccinated. <laughs> yeah. so those two things combined may have gotten him to get vaccinated. But with that as the context, I don't know that he was trying to say or, or come down hard on Novak. I actually think that there might have been some, uh, just okay. some mistakes made in his communication. Yeah, could be. Maybe not. Maybe not. But I, I almost think he'll walk it back. And but what he said was everybody is like fools. Right, he he made everybody look like fools. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that, part of me, yeah. I don't know. What do you think of this? Part of me wonders: Does he mean like, oh, we didn't have to get vaccinated? Like he made us look like fools. <laughs> we didn't have to get vaccinated. Like, like everybody, everybody did this thing, and we didn't even have to. So he made us look like fools. Yeah, I mean that that that's a plausible interpretation. I mean, he also said. That Djokovic has been playing by his own rules. Hmm. Yeah, but I don't know if that's necessarily. Maybe he. I'm not saying he does admire this. Maybe he admires that. Like maybe he means that as a positive thing. Like he's playing. He's playing by his own rules. I think. I guess there's definitely a negative connotation of that usually, mm -hmm. but you can also be envious of that. <laughs> you could. You could. Yeah. You could. Right? Yeah. Although I am reading this one last part and like, I didn't remember exactly what he said either, but he did say it takes a lot of daring to do and put the grand slam at risk, which I don't think many players would do. Eh. Yeah. Could be. Could I be. think he meant for Novak. He's putting yeah, it Novak. at risk for Novak. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I see. Um, I see. Gotcha. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like he's saying, and that was another thing that I think was misinterpreted possibly about what he was trying to say, which he was saying Oh, it's a it's a big risk. Novak is making a big risk. I think he means the risk is that Novak can't play, mm. and that's Novak's personal risk. I don't think he meant the risk is that we're all going to get COVID. You know? Yeah, yeah. Always got to kind of take into account the possible misinterpretation or the um, you know, how the quotes are put in in the article. So. Gil, um, I really do appreciate your time, man. I uh, obviously want to respect your time, and you've got some stuff to to do here. So, uh, where can people uh, find your awesome uh, content at and check it out? So, my YouTube channel is called Gil Gross. Simple YouTube search will pull it up. The podcast, which not all my content goes up on audio, but a lot of it does. Um, for that, look up Monday Match Analysis on wherever you get your podcasts. And also three, a tennis show, which is uh, my podcast with Joel Drucker and Amy Lundy, also on YouTube. And that specifically covers Roger Federer, Rafael Nadal, and Novak Djokovic. And um, I really enjoyed this. Thank you so much for having me on. Yeah, anytime, Gil. Uh, thanks so much for your time. And uh, everybody can check out Gil's links in the show notes, uh, on the show notes page and in your app, uh, podcast app. So Gil, thanks a lot for coming on to the show. Really appreciate it and hope to talk to you again soon and keep up the great work. Thanks, Marabon. So a couple of days after Gil and I recorded this interview, we, of course, learned that Novak Djokovic had to leave Australia 
on Sunday after three federal judges upheld Australia's immigration minister Alex Hawke's decision to revoke Djokovic's visa for the second time. And it was quite an interesting trial. The debate uh, focused on Djokovic's views on vaccination and whether those views constituted a public health threat. And so the three judges upheld the decision uh, to revoke Djokovic's visa. And they did not, at least as of uh, today, uh, have not issued a, an explanation for it. Um, but it was a unanimous vote. So there you go. And yeah, obviously, crazy, crazy times. Uh, and, you know, of course, Australia and the tournament, they could have perhaps just had a bright line rule without exceptions, which would have made things easier. And, you know, as I know, um, being a, an attorney, uh, when you introduce uh, exceptions and, you know, gray line or, you know, or gray areas, that's going to cause issues and debates. And, uh, then you have, you know, this power um, that the immigration minister has to determine in the interest of the public health, basically, that, that he can uh, revoke the visa. So it's, it's, uh, it's complicated. But uh, despite that, I hope that you all enjoy the Australian Open and uh, plenty of great tennis. And I've been watching some already. And yeah, it's still exciting matches. So the tournament must go on. And we'll see what happens with uh, Novak Djokovic because obviously he may run into these issues again. I mean, uh, France uh, has just imposed it, even though they they mentioned previously that he would be able to play play the French Open. They now just recently announced that they would have a, a requirement to be vaccinated to enter. So uh, will Novak Djokovic uh, experience this issue <laughs> on and on and on? Who knows? So obviously, some countries will have different policies for than others and so forth. So we shall see, and it will be very interesting indeed. But I really do hope that you enjoyed my interview with Gil as well as this uh, wrap-up. I thought I'd obviously, you know, wrap it up given that some additional stuff has happened since uh, our interview. So, uh, and if you have enjoyed this podcast and found value and entertainment from it, uh, one or the other or both, hopefully, (laughs) then I would really, really appreciate it if you would leave a review for the Tennis Files podcast. And you can do that at tennisfiles.com slash Apple Podcasts. That's T-E-N-N-I-S-F-I-L-E-S dot com slash Apple Podcasts. Or you can leave a review on your favorite podcast app of your choice. But leaving a review on Apple Podcasts just seems to move the needle the most in terms of then bringing the show higher up in the wacky algorithm that Apple has so that more people can view it and benefit from it. So there you go. And I would like to leave you with a quote, as I often do at the end of the show. And this is very appropriate. It's from Martin Luther King Jr. And I'm recording this outro on MLK Day. So Martin Luther King Jr. said, out of the mountain of despair, a stone of hope. Very deep quote there. And with that, thanks so much for listening. Uh, We have a great interview coming up with Dr. Mark Kovacs, a fan favorite on how to get your fitness routine and gear and improve your performance on the court and always amazing insights from Dr. Kovacs. So you won't want to miss that one. But thank you so much for listening to this episode and we'll see you on the next episode of the Tennis Files 
podcast. This is Mirban Aranshad signing out. Oh, and one last thing that I almost forgot to mention just out of thoroughness is that Gil and I talked about uh, Rublev, the fifth seed, potentially taking the place of Novak Djokovic in the draw um, if Novak had to uh, leave the country, which he indeed had to do. But it actually turns out that a lucky loser, I believe, replaced Novak Djokovic instead. So I just wanted to clarify that Rublev did not go in Djokovic's place. Rather, a lucky loser did. All right, that's it. Have a great one, and I'll see you on the next episode. Peace. Thanks for listening to the Tennis Files podcast. For more tips to help you improve your tennis game, visit TennisFiles.com.